Hey guys, grab a seat. Well, last night I drove to Bradenton, which is about two hours from Orlando, and our twins are seniors in high school, and so and they're playing football, and so they were in the state semifinal there, and um, man, it was it was fun, but um, I'm a little I was a little jacked up last night. And a little bit excited. I got home at 2 a.m. Um, and then I could not fall asleep because I was so excited. Till about four, they did. They did. They so it was really fun. Ty, Ty, you know, we with the twins there's Cole and Ty. So Ty just shredded this team for about 400 yards passing, which was awesome. Um, especially since they have been in the state championship for the last five years, this team that they beat. So they beat them 50 to 7. They just pounded them. So, yeah, it was awesome. So they're in the state final next week in Lakeland. So uh, anyways, so that's why I couldn't sleep. I was just a little bit excited. Um, so I got an hour and a half of sleep. So if I nod off during the teaching, please come up here, wake me up really quick, okay? All right, so... Well, this morning, we are concluding our series titled, What Really Matters? And so, over these last six weeks, we've pulled out a number of things from Scripture that God has communicated to us through His Word, and we've talked about things that really matter. And last week, we looked, about, looked at about six different verses, and we used a Bible study method called exegesis. Do you remember that? Um, did I bring my drink out here? I did not. Hold on just a minute. Okay, entertain yourselves just for 10 seconds. Okay, go. Thank you. Justy, you are on fire this morning with the music right away. Totally unplanned. That is awesome. So, we talked about this Bible study method, which is really the, the process that interpreters use in finding out, like, what does Scripture say? And it's called exegesis, and that is where we extract from the text what it means. Instead of reading into the text what we want which is through kind of our own lens and our own bias and presuppositions. It's the, the process of allowing Scripture to speak for itself. Okay, so those two terms are exegesis and eisegesis. And eisegesis is making the Bible kind of say what we want to. And so one gives Christ authority, the other makes us the authority. And so obviously we want to practice the, the one where God is the authority and not the other. And as a community of, of Jesus followers, we want to be faithful to what God has revealed to us through His written Word. And Jesus practiced this. This is one of the things that I noticed when I first started reading Scripture is that Jesus would consistently respond to challenges or questions by others very simply and directly, <clears throat> and oftentimes he would begin 
that response with, it is written. It is written. And so he held Scripture in the highest regard, and he banked his, like his existence on it, his purpose, why he was here, that was seated in Scripture. And that is just an exciting, um, an, uh, this example for me to know that Jesus had that kind of confidence in Scripture. When I think of him, I think of somebody who's wise. He had, obviously, God's wisdom, and so that speaks to my heart, that I can trust Scripture too. And I think of, like when I first came to Christ, I remember um, my, my, a good friend of mine, I had shared Jesus with him, and he became a Christian, and we were both talking about the fact that we had Bibles, and we were like, man, this is this is awesome that, like, even just six months ago, we were completely clueless on life in so many ways. And now we're still kind of clueless, but there's some answers in here, and we know the author. And we, we like, have the rest of our lives to get to know this. And we were both just like, man, we feel so fortunate to have that, to lean into and to trust. And that is true for us. How reassuring in this world that produces so much angst and so much anxiety and so much conflict that we have this reassurance of Jesus' teaching and that we can lean into that. And so, I've been thinking a lot recently about how Jesus taught, as I've been thinking about how I teach and should and am working at teaching better and trying to be more effective in communicating. And I've noticed that in some circles there was this especially like visceral reaction to Jesus, especially with some of the most popular teachers of the time when he was around. And the first reason I think is really obvious is just human nature, is that they were jealous of Jesus because towards the end of his ministry, he started to collect a huge following, okay? The teachers of, of the law, a lot of the Pharisees, um, <clears throat> they had started to lose their voice somewhat in their influence, and it really irked them that there were so many that were now starting to follow Jesus, or at least talking about Him and listening to Him, and there were crowds. Like, I doubt that for some of those other teachers that they were having crowds following them. So, Jesus was like the big thing. The other thing that I think really irked them was the way he would teach. There was this authority that he taught with. Authority. He taught with authority, and they could not compete with that. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, scripture says that Jesus regularly taught, taught in the synagogues, okay? So there's the temple, which is pretty ornate. God's presence was there, 
Um, but then there were these synagogues that were all around, and in some of the cities there might be 40 or 50 of these synagogues that were modest buildings that were called like houses of instruction, okay? And they functioned more like, like a typical church building where people were there throughout the week, and so Jesus would teach there regularly throughout the week. And that was a place for discussion. Um, the men would gather for discussion, theological discussion. They would talk about the Old Testament. There were a number of rabbis who would speak, and that happened throughout the week. And Scripture tells us that Jesus would regularly do that also. Now, they would hear from a number of rabbis. What they ended up with usually was like interpretations of Scripture, and one would be Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Jones, <laughs> it's not Hebrew, I don't think. <laughs> it's close. It's a very close transliteration. And so, um, and this rabbi says this, here's our take. That's kind of what they were left with. They had different rabbis' interpretations of Old Testament Scripture, and then Jesus would step up to the plate, and He would teach very differently. He would say, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is how you apply it to your life. So He spoke with this uncanny authority, and I think eventually that probably wasn't appreciated by the other rabbis. They may have thought, man, he's kind of arrogant. And remember, this is the same Jesus that at 12 years old was in the temple and was questioning the teachers of the law. Like, they were really mesmerized by this young kid and what he knew and how he knew Scripture. And he was probably like, he's a prodigy. He's a prodigy. And now... He's kind of a problem as he's grown up here. He's a loose cannon for sure, especially towards the end of his ministry. Those last three years, then he was saying things like this. See that verse? That verse right there? That's talking about me. And I'm fulfilling this right now as you listen. That kind of thing, for sure, the rabbis were like, okay, now he's taking this way too far. It's not just my interpretation. He's saying, this is the way it is, and this actually is about me. So there was this authority there <clears throat> that he spoke with, and I think that even irked his own family. Like Scripture says that there were times like um, his family kind of you know, it was like, oh my gosh, all right, um, I'll tell you what, for somebody to say the things that you say, I'm kind of loosely paraphrasing here, like, don't do that here. Go into the city, go speak to other people and, and teach that message there. Go to the feast, go to the Passover. It's time for you to move on from here and let's see how these things play out in a much bigger you know, a bigger venue, so to speak. So, Jesus spoke with authority, and His words mattered. His words mattered. And there were some 
that when they heard him teach, because of that authority, were struck. And the one that I'm always like drawn to is Nicodemus, a religious leader of the time who was called Israel's teacher, well-respected, well-read, knows his stuff, comes to Jesus and says, teacher, we know you're from God. Nobody else teaches the way you do. Nobody. So Nicodemus was wise enough to know that, oh my gosh, he knows scripture. He knew that Jesus had character and he was living it out. He knew there was something different. So I want to talk about a principle that shows up very early in Scripture and is woven throughout Scripture and becomes part of the rhythm of life that God desires for His people to live and how it can be misunderstood or underapplied nowadays. And Jesus spoke about this a lot, spoke about it numerous times. So we're going to start in Genesis 2 and in that, just to kind of bring you up to speed, we see God completing the work of creation, okay? Now, I'm, an only, uh, I'm only an art major. I have very little experience in creation in comparison to the God of the universe. But when I have created something that I've really put my heart into, I feel like I need some rest afterwards, okay? Um, but when I look at God and who He is... I don't think it was that he needed to rest, like take a nap. I think there was something different about what he did in that term, rest. There was something about looking at what was accomplished, slowing down, and appreciating its beauty, appreciating what had been created. So here in Genesis begins this rhythm that God himself establishes for us that involves this concept of rest, rest. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and this is the beginning of this theme <clears throat> that runs all throughout Scripture and actually involves us too. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. So here's what's so intriguing about this event. This theme of rest continues throughout all of history. So does this mean that God needed a nap? Not really. Like, does this command us to rest at the end of the week in this, in this scripture, in this verse right here? No, it does not. So we're going to need to drill down into this a little bit further and a little bit de deeper because I think there's something going on here that's beyond physical rest, to the point where he calls it holy. Holy is this term for like sanctified and set apart. 
set apart. God's people were holy. They were set apart from others. So what does this mean for us? God now is beginning this framework for what it means for us to be in His will. So let's go back to the garden, a little bit ahead of that. The Father was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, walking with them in the cool of the garden. So you get a picture of relationship, appreciation, peace, and contentment. There's this restfulness of walking with God. And one of the consequences of them doing their own thing there in the garden was losing that. And what did it look like? The words that it uses are in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. It reminds me of an old Kansas song, right? Everybody over 40 right now is like, oh yeah. But I know you millennials, you're getting into our stuff now, aren't you? Oh yeah. You're like, hey, they really did. You know it, Savannah. Oh, you do know it, yes. So here's these words that are used. We've gone from peace and rest and walking with God in the cool of the garden to labor and toil and struggle. They had it all. They chose to get more. They didn't trust God in that context. And that toil that happened unfolds even more over history. So we're going to move a little bit ahead in this story. Exodus 1, 11 through 14. These are the people of God, and this toil and this labor and this struggle has increased where people are over them and they're working. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So they've lost that rest and contentment that they were experiencing in God's presence. Gone is this experience of trusting God and this profound like relationship, knowing His providing. And now there's these burdens. It's in the form of this yoke of slavery, it's pain, it's back-breaking work, and the world bears down on them. But God steps in to save the day. Exodus 6. I'm going to turn there and read this. Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Therefore, 
Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to, a to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So now we have a promise that he is going to remove this yoke of slavery. He's going to give them a land where all their needs will be met again. He's basically saying, remember what you guys lost in the garden? I'm going to give it to you again. Let's, let's do this again. So this theme and this dilemma that they find themselves in is something that unfolds continually throughout Scripture. And this is one of the real fascinating parts, I think, of Scripture for me, was that all of these authors in different genres, like that didn't know each other, that there's this continuity of these stories that continue from Genesis all the way through Revelation. There is this thumbprint of God on His Word that these things work together. More is then revealed as the story unfolds. I love the continuity of Scripture. So now we're going to move ahead into the New Testament, and we're going to see this same principle emerge in another way. Okay? It's still, it's this thread and this theme that continues. Now we're going to see God's grace in saving this nation from extreme toil and servitude, offering them this promised land, and then that is to be memorialized in kind of these religious practices. Okay? Um, a weekly Sabbath of rest from work was a main feature of this rest memorial, okay? This rest was not so much about us. It was a memorial to what God had done. So it really has more to do with us setting apart time to remember God's faithfulness. As slaves in Egypt, they didn't have any rest for themselves. They were really at the whim of their taskmasters. God frees them from this labor, gives them freedom and prosperity, and Israel was to remember this gracious freedom that they were given. And they were just to do that on a regular basis. In Isaiah, it says this, in that day when this future kingdom would be established, the Lord will bring His people Israel out from all the nations. And what would He give His people? He would give them 
rest. Here's what it says. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Jeremiah uses this term again, rest. At that time, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. So now we have this new picture of the Israelites resting, celebrating, watching God provide while surrounding cultures and nations were toiling and working really hard. So observers would see them and have some of the same thoughts that I have when I see a Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, okay? Like I'm reminded that I don't understand how this works. They have zero debt. All these other restaurants are competing and are open. They're closed. How is this working? How is this working? Why aren't they laboring? Because they don't have to. Or there's something going on where they're setting this time apart. And so it's just this principle that rest is remembering God's love. So this, like for us on a Sunday morning, when Carrie and the band, when they're leading us as we worship together, this is part of our rest and our time to remember what God has done and it is sweet. So let's move ahead in the story as God continues to progressively reveal this theme. Let's finish with Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Matthew 11. So now we're in the Gospels. We've moved ahead hundreds of years in history. And guess what? The same theme and the same thing is talked about. 11, 28 through 30. Jesus speaking. Now it's Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is a picture of back to the garden. You're walking with me. The burden is not on you. I am providing for you. This is that same concept, and it relates to us, and it's about sin. There's a tremendous amount of guilt, conviction, and shame that we feel. Like when we humbly dissect our lives, like when we honestly look at our lives, there's some burden there. 
But here, Jesus describes how he gently removes it. He says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. He cares for us. He loves us. And then he willingly takes on the burden that has so deeply wounded us. And guess what? When it comes to our salvation, we do not toil and work and labor to be forgiven. We don't. Instead, He offers it to us. He provides us the promised land. We are forgiven. All of this taken together illustrates the gospel clearly. This progressive continuity of this book is one of the reasons that I'm convinced of its truthfulness. They could not have made this stuff up. They didn't get together and say, wait a minute, we've got to somehow get that theme into this book. I hope that we can see that whether we're studying the Old Testament or the New Testament, that we can start to see some of these themes where God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. He's the same. Right away, he wanted to step in and save his people, and he was starting that process from the moment that humanity lost it there. And in the end there, we have Jesus, who's ultimately saying that he is the manifestation of all that God will provide for us. Freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom from having to toil and labor to be right before God. Prior to knowing the gospel, I had no idea where I stood before God. I remember thinking, like, comparing myself to others, never knowing where I stood, and then knowing deep down that I had <clears throat> really blown it. It's a beautiful story. It's interesting that, like God said, I did this work in Genesis, this work, and then he sat back and watched it and saw that it was good. And Jesus said, I came to do the work that the Father gave me to do. Jesus did the work on our behalf. This, my friends, is our God. Can we all just like take a moment in that? That we have a God that desires to remove your sin and your burdens. He's not saying take a day off with me. He wants something much more profound, and it affects every single day, every single relationship, everything. For you as someone who 
maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. Or you don't know, you didn't know that He wants to remove your burden and your sin and save you from the bondage of sin. That message is for you. Or from the bondage of misunderstanding. This misunderstanding that much of the world has, that if we labor and we strive and we work for our salvation, that's what tons of other world religions are built on, working and laboring and striving, and hopefully whoever that God is will be pleased with me. It is not freedom. It is bondage. It is not the message of Scripture. That's not it. Jesus brought something very different. I want to finish with just an encouragement to you guys, and that is just what maybe keeping the Sabbath holy can look like for us. Just being set apart, setting time apart to get time with God. I think about this, I am a people person, um, and that's time with God and then there is something else with me. I'm not saying this is for everybody, but there is something about certain people that I, when I'm with them, it is like water for my soul. Whatever that activity is for you, if it's worshiping, if it's in nature, if it's extended time listening to Him in the Word, wherever it feels like you are walking with God in the cool of the garden, that's your Sabbath. That's your rest. That's when you're walking with Him. Go for it. And like I said... For me, there are certain people, my friend Aaron Zink, one of my friends up in Ohio, when I just see him, my burden is immediately lighter. Like, something is just lifted in me. I could actually be very busy with him, but still, after a weekend with him, I feel rested and I feel at peace. There's something about this rest. Those of us, I would say, Probably all of us have had those moments when you've felt content and peaceful and sitting back and just thinking, I wish this moment would never end. That is what God says to us. That this moment, this rest and peace and contentment, you're going to experience it forever in my presence. That's an incredible thing. Whatever your pathway to God is that makes you feel like, man, I am in His presence now, realize that's holy. It's holy. You matter. Your longevity matters. Our goal one of our goals at H2O is we want to help make disciples of Jesus for the long haul. And when we are experiencing that type of rest, 
where we're being what like our soul is being watered, we last. And God fills us up and He refreshes us and we don't burn out. We matter. God's Word matters. Making long-term disciples matters. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that Your Word has all this deep, like there's so much going on. That the gospel, like the way the story is communicated in so many different ways is incredible. All these different word pictures, all these things that are woven together, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus quoting from Isaiah and saying, this is about me, like you orchestrated this. And the reason you did what you did was to come and save us. Ultimately, you desire relationship. And so, God, we want to get back to the garden where we walk with you in the cool of that. In that place of just rest, it can be exciting, it can be exhilarating, it's just incredible being in your presence. And so we're thankful for that. God, I pray even as we continue to worship that you'd water our souls. Help us to pursue whatever that is that we can set apart where our soul gets watered. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.